Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived. This is what had happened was season four, episode seven. And we are now in the era of Illadelph Half-Life. We've arrived at the Roots third studio album and major label sophomore effort. I got to tell you, this is a fascinating story. Uh, I was listening to the Roots at the time when this album came out from the outside looking in it looked like the roots had made a concerted effort to change their sound from live instrumentation to more traditional beats and rhymes but in this conversation i've had with quest love i've gotten a completely different insight everybody was not on board and that ends up being a big part of the story of this album in his first part hear how Funkmaster flex a sprite commercial and philadelphia barbershops played into this very very sharp change in direction Speaking of changing directions, I'm your host and a rapper myself, as you can hear in the theme songs, songs, plural, we've produced for this season. I'm going on tour in December playing Open Mike Eagle originals. I'm going to be in Houston, Dallas, Brooklyn, Philly, D.C., Boston, Orlando, and Miami. Hit up MikeEagle.net for details. This podcast is part of the Stony Island Audio Network, your home for rap podcasts that you can actually listen to. With shows like Fatherhood's Podcast, The Dad Bod Rap Pod, stories about songs with Kevin Beecham, and more. And with that, let's get into it. Season 4, Episode 7, Illadelph Half-Life. Half-Life. Pick up a flashlight, thick as a mag light on the last album, ripping the bagpipes. And this is the half-life, the grind like the lip of a half-pipe, and sharp like the tip of stalactites. They wasn't clones, though, they punching your nose bone. The roots roll tight like it's turbo and ozone. No toast price like them all on the roads, though. Blind the devil with the bold black and gold shine. Travel through the you would not burst with the calm sense. The bomb shit give us five stars for the content. Push up the lighter to contend with the darkness is what it happened was open mic eagle and quest love for the illadelph half stories this is the plug to have the roots got it all out the mud once this is your host open mic eagle Century, season four what it happened was this is part three illadelph half life we keep changing the theme it's like the anime something dramatic happens We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least a hundred of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, 
and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. Mr. Amir, how we doing today? We're doing awesome, man. That's good to hear, man. We're, yeah. we're here to talk about the third Canon Roots album, man. Illadelf Half-Life, released September 24th. 1996. Yeah, man. It's just hip hop, hanging in my head, happy. My legs are free. You know the planet ain't ready for the half. When I come up with the action pack, once I've done these shit, represent the house black. Yo, they like this, and you wish it had been a lot. You know, it's weird how you have uh, associative memories with a project. And um, to me, the the at least for me in hindsight for that record, is how much effort and energy. Like, I'm now, I'm now in a place now where I'm very wise and I've learned lessons. Do wise people ever call themselves wise, though? Um, I might be a sage <laughs> that's, you know, like, when you know good and well, you're in your late 40s, but uh-huh. you still try to act like you're in your mid-30s. Gotcha. Self-aware. I'm a, I was student, you know, student at 30, uh, wise at 40, and a sage at 50, and you know, 60 on. Still here, still here. So I, I'll say that um, the lesson I've learned now with music is, you know, you always serve the song, serve the album, and I'm amazed at how good and how timely. Illadelph Half-Life is, despite my many attempts to sabotage that record. That's so interesting. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. All right. Before we get into it, though, yeah. the title. Yeah. Is there a story behind the title? Um, Illadelph Half-Life, brainchild of my late manager, Richard Nichols. Mm, rest in peace to Rich. Yeah. And I say, of all of our titles, this is the one that I'm... He had an actual, like, uh, scientific definition of this where he was trying to say how like nuclear reactors could either you know when something's on half-life you're either going to explode or implode so like a crossroads yeah every every album title either refers to the state of the world the state of hip-hop culture and the state of the roots so do you want more what, what did that speak to so you know initially that album was going to be called homegrown and Again, Rich was like, every album title should have a three-prong reach. And, you know, do you want more for the world? Do you want more out of hip-hop culture? And the roots are like, do you want more? Like, something else. It's probably the, the, the least condescending way to <laughs> say, hey, hey, guys, we have other options here. Right. <laughs> you know, it was like the least condescending way to, to, to say that. And so... Yeah, Illadelph Half-Life. Um, I remember there was a debate. I wanted to... I'm big on on numbers. And so I learned this trick from... Billy Idol, I believe, would 
continue the numbers of his journey of I his canon. I was wondering journey. where that started. I didn't realize Billy Idol was doing that. Yeah, he did. Um, at least for like a couple of albums, it was like side six, side seven. The, you know, so I I always felt like albums should be volume two, volume three, John. So I wanted up until the very last minute. I took the liberty of spelling Illadelph Half Life all lower cases probably inspired by uh dream hampton she would only write her name uh in lower lowercase and i think i wanted to put a um a dividing line between the words half and life i remember seeing that a couple times right and then but i also wanted volume three so at least in the source review it was like illadelph half life volume three but it it just looked really confusing and rich was like look man just <laughs> just illadelph half life like Rich's job is to keep me from being driving the uh, the the pretentious gotcha. lane of you know dial that back a little bit. You don't want to always prove that you're the smartest guy in the room, Amir. Just let shit be. So, so uh, and shout out to uh, our other friend who likes to write his name in lowercase, MC Paul Barman. Yes, yeah, MC yeah. Paul Barman. Yes, absolutely. So when you first started making music in the studio, what you wanted to do, and this is when y'all first went in to make organics, you wanted to use samples. You wanted to make what you thought was traditional hip-hop. Yeah. You kind of got redirected, and y'all ended up coming up with what the formula for Roots music sounded like. Now... That's so weird you said that, because now I realize that for the first three albums, it's always been a tug-of-war. Uh-huh, between... I wanted to sample. They're right. like, no, live. Mm -hmm. And then... Now we're in a place, because really, Illadelph Half-Life starts with, I would say the beginning of Illadelph Half-Life really starts with the end of Do You Want More, which is, we're really putting our eggs in the basket of silent treatment remixes. We tried with Distortion Static and did a whole bunch of remixes, and, you know, we got college radio love, but, you know, we're really gunning for mixtape DJs, you know, with the exception of your Cosmic Kevs in Philly. You know, Tony Touch always showed his love, but he really, Tony Touch really wasn't putting his foot pedal to the metal, at least until like 97, 98. There was a New York DJ named Buddha Barber. He would show his love, but like, you know, kind of the doo-wops of the world. But here's the question. So, I mean, so they weren't really playing Distortion to Static, and you're talking about silent treatment, but... Proceed wasn't, they weren't bumping that really either? Not really. And the thing was, like, we really went hard on those 12 inches. Somewhere between four to six remixes per thing. Because we just wanted to leave no stone unturned. And we put the most work on silent treatment. When I met her, she was physically intact and mentally apt to adapt to whatever rap qualities that attract the triple X black erotic narcotic from the back. Amina with the most melodic vocal tone, met her on the avenue, then exchanged telephone numbers later had a few conversations and vibrations out of quiet. We couldn't, you know, the, the whole like trying to rub sticks together to try to make a spark or a flame to get something happening. It just wasn't happening for us on a level that you know really it's like we need it and that's what makes Tariq finally getting that approval from flex 
28 years into his career. That's why it makes it so poetic. I'm helping rappers everywhere for filler. Death wish, yo flex. I'm glad we made contact. My nigga also know this shit for combat. Brain matter contain too much data. I tell a story like fingerprints and blood splatter. You see what it is? Black door funk flex. One motherfucking take. For your fucking cornball niggas coming up here doing 50. We were living in Europe by the by this point. You know, because it's either like you, you either got to go where the heat is or you got to come and do some politicking and shake hands and kiss some babies. And we're not going to Jack the Rapper. You know, we're not going to Freak Nick. And after that documentary, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So all of those conventions, those how can I be downs, and we're not doing that. Uh, the The... MC battles of like new music seminar. We're not doing any of those things. And we're starting to feel like the if the tree that falls in the forest doesn't make a sound. And this is after Do You Want More has come out. Like this is the feeling that's yeah. just prevailing. It's we were just we were a niche group. And, you know, our only the only time we're really needed in America. Um, and in, you know, it's it's a guarantee to stay on standby. And it's a guarantee that some rap group is going to fuck up and stand up this particular college and they call Kara Lewis. Kara Lewis is our agent, you know. Call up Kara Lewis and, oh, I got somebody for you. Hey, guys, can you go down to da-da-da-da-da? Are y'all so, flying out from Europe to do college gigs? No, okay. okay. We, we, we were wise enough to at least be home base. Springtime, there, there's a season. Gotcha. There's a season. Stay in America, September through October. We go to Europe, November to December. Now, post, post things fall apart, then I could say January and February could be Asia slash South America slash Australia time because it's summer in Australia and all that stuff. And then March, I'll say March and April is cool to dip your toe in the water to see if you can do clubs and do... Uh, theaters. Those are already really hard. At least with the college gigs, you have a built-in audience that doesn't know you, but if you perform your ass off, then you have a new fan base. So it's almost like we're forcing them against their will. Like, you, you came for Wu-Tang, but <laughs> here we are. You know, and then, you know, arms crossed and all that stuff. And, and then summertime, from May until July... You're in Europe doing these big giant festivals, and you're trying to make an impression on at least five to ten thousand of those people, of those hundred thousand that are there to see Jamiroquai or whoever you're like opening for. And then. When you come back in December, November, December, then that audience that you made an impression on, that becomes your fan base. Mm -hmm. And so that's pretty much the, the cycle that we did for those 18 years before Fallon. Now, I will say that silent treatment kind of quickly, like we put so many eggs in that basket because we knew like... They can crossover song. Yeah, like, and it wasn't that intention thing like, oh, we're going to go pop, but... I kind of felt like Silent Treatment was an irresistible, cool song. Girl, you know that 
Speaking of associated memories, me uh, and two of my classmates, one of them, Allende Jean-Baptiste, who you might remember yes. being, yeah. Uh, so we all went to high school together. We okay. had choir class and we had choir recital and the three of us performed silent treatment. Really? For our, uh, my, I think it was my sophomore, junior year choir class. That's so hard to believe, man, because when I tell you, I'm shocked that anyone has any memories where like, the roots are my group. Like the way that I listen to Bizarre Ride to the Far Side or the way that I listen to any tribe record, like I can't imagine someone like volunteeringly like taking their cassette and putting it on and listening to it. I mean, when I got really deep into hip hop, like in the part of my journey where like this is right before I started rapping, because mm -hmm. of course hip hop was around all of my life, but I never really like super fucked with it. I was more into like alternative rock music. Like that shit was awesome to me. Like I'd, I'd right. sit and watch 120 minutes on MTV. Like right. that was my shit. I'm Matt Pinfield, and I'm gonna let you know what's happening tonight at midnight, 11 Central, for 120 minutes on MTV. But it was one summer, my homie Mario, he gave me Common's Resurrection. Resurrection. Do you want more? I think the third one might have been Old Dirty's album. Yeah, and I was like, oh, okay, I'm here now. Wow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that was what did it for me. Like, That's weird to, to hear it because, you know, I would figure that you would have to ramp, slowly ramp your... Like, I was there since Rapper's Delight. So I was there at the beginning of the Big Bang Theory. So Right, right, right. I'm just slowly going 20 miles per hour down this long road. But it's kind of weird that you just like, hey, what's on this floor? Like, you're getting yeah, out of a I mean, department store. The first rap music I ever heard, I got in a car with my mom in first grade, and she was playing Easy e Yo, Ren, you ready to go get this money? Leave that, boy. You strapped? Yeah, you know it. Let's go do this shit, man. I got it all planned out. Yeah, shoot any motherfucker that moves. This is a stick up. Everybody get face down. Ran gag their mouth so they can't make a sound. That was your that first hip hop experience? That was the first rap song I ever heard in my life. Was, what song was it? Uh, it was one of them terribly inappropriate songs. I think it's the one where he was robbing the bank. And was your mom a fan? Yeah, my mom was like an 80s party, wow, I wonder, party girl. I like, don't know what that's like. I don't know yeah. what it's like to live in a household where hip-hop is not contraband. Well, I didn't live with my mom either because she was an 80s party girl. You I know you. what I'm saying? So I, I lived you. with her parents. Grandmama. Right, so, Nana. And, and okay. so, right. And so, you know, it, it wasn't contraband, but like they didn't, you know, they just associated with niggas outside doing crazy shit. So nah, man. Like hip-hop was hip-hop prince, comedy. Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, all that stuff is listened to under the under the volume. <laughs> like that, that that was my experience of it, you know. And listening to it in en route to school, where I could blast it on my headphones. But wow, that's that's something I never thought about. Like I'm the first generation that discovers it, but I wonder what it is to be a baby and your parents are into hip hop. Yeah, and you're getting it like kind of in this benevolent way, like, ooh, turn that up. That's my song. Yeah, it was crazy. More like, what's that shit you playing? But you my know? mom was like, ah, right. like, she wasn't, she didn't represent other people in her generation. Like, you know, my aunties and uncles right. and shit wasn't quite as into it as much as she was. I got it, I you got know. it. 
I got it. But back to this tug of war. Right. I want, I'm very interested in that dynamic as you painted, going from you wanting a sample to y'all finding y'all sound, and then whatever feeling y'all are having at the end of Do You Want More that's leading you into changing the sound. All right, so this is what I learned. We were in Glasgow, Scotland, and I believe that we were really putting our eggs in the basket of... Now, if you remember last episode, I told you that, you know, we signed... We signed to Geffen, a label with no hip-hop experience whatsoever. They signed us in the Jizza. Uh, the suicide of Kurt Cobain kind of sends us into a tailspin in which we decide we're going to steal our own money and move to Europe, get a hub in London, and just work our asses off there. And when we feel it's safe to come back to the States, then we'll come back to the States. So we're just doing the, the, the European uh, circuit. And meanwhile... All those conventions are happening, and every day I'm calling like, okay, so well, Steve Rifkin, president of Loud Records, is going to handle the promotions, and we're using other labels, and we're just hoping that you know something sparks, and you know, and the big the big thing was like, you know, we'll, we'll flex play silent treatment. You see me? I'm here, New York, screaming at you at noon. And back then, the very quick thumbs up, thumbs down from Flex is Flex will say, yeah, I'm feeling this. Keeping it 100. And if Flex is not feeling it, he'll be like, eh, I'm not feeling it. Brutal. Which is, you know, even why Busted Rhymes, Big Pump Master Flex says, yo, I'm feeling feeling these. these. (laughs) Right. Yo, my rhymes create life like the birds and the bees. Make Pump Master Flex say, yo, I'm feeling these. You want to hear them three words like flex, flex update. Uh, he, he didn't give it to us yet. And then finally, uh, after a show, you know, we, we called uh, on three way uh, from Glasgow. And, you know, our rep guy was just like, hey, man, I tried y'all. But, you know, flex is like, uh, I don't know if I'm feeling this. And it's like I felt some sort of way because both the Fugees and us came out the gate at the same time, and he was playing nappy heads like a motherfucker. He was playing nappy heads off the first album. The remix. The right, Slime the, the Remix. remix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? A cheaper, cheaper, y'all. Well, I'm a Libra, y'all. A cheaper, cheaper, y'all. Well, I'm a Libra, y'all. And so, automatically, I'm thinking like, damn. We didn't do exactly like a... I could have did a better head knot remix for Silent Treatment. Like, I'm already internally blaming myself. But essentially, they're telling us, like, look, we we tried three times already, and this kind of dead in the water, guys, you know? So it is what it is. We'll, we'll try next album. So then we get home in two weeks, and Richard wakes me up at, like, 7.30 in the morning. He always calls me... Rich wakes up at five in the morning, already strategizing that month's itinerary. And I'm the guy he bounces off of. So I know between 7 a.m. to like 10 a.m. that I got to pick up the phone and we got to start strategy talk. And he basically is breaking to me that, you know, Tariq and Malik want to make this album more traditional. And I'm like, well... What does that mean in English? Because <laughs> I always had this in the back of my mind, like, 
I don't know how to make a real hip-hop album yet. Because at this point, you haven't really done that, right? Right, which is why I insisted on, like, I figure at least with the organics and that stuff, I I could throw myself in the water and then by 1996, three years later, I could be a monster. But we spent so much time touring. Like, I brought a drum machine or two, but I didn't take it out the box and none of that stuff. And now I'm being told that they want to make a more traditional hip-hop album. They didn't tell you? Man, the wonders of this group is, I mean, we are intact as a unit, but communication was never our forte. And Rich was always the, the hub in the center of, like, it's guaranteed that Amir's going to quit the roots for a month and then come home with his, okay, give me... All right, put the reel up. Let me start drumming on what I missed. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And so already I'm panicking because I'm like, wait, are you trying to, in a benign way, like tell me that I'm about to get replaced in my own group? Like, oh, okay, I see. Because, right, since you're not confident in yourself as a traditional rap beat maker, then, yeah. then basically it's like them telling you that you're no longer needed. And I fell way. for the Kool-Aid. I'm like, wait, I, th I thought our whole angle was like, yo, we're, we're a live band right. and all that stuff. And he's like, yeah, in concert, we're going to do that. And I was like, but in the studio is where it counts. And I am a critic obsessive artist. Even if we were to get five mics, I want to get it on my creations, not like some other beat maker's creation or my boy's creation. And, you know, then he put them on three-way, and it was weird. That That's probably the only time where Malik stepped to the plate assertively to, like, say, yeah, man, you know, we tried it your way last time, and, you know, it didn't work. Because, you know, in their... I feel like in their mind, the barbershop was the epicenter of what the approval is going to be. That's what they're aiming at. Right. And I'm aiming for getting a lead review in Rolling Stone. Right. Getting four and a half mics in the source. Like, I'm thinking critics. Critical acclaim is what's going to keep us from getting dropped. And so, Mal's just like, yeah, man, we, you know, we tried it your way. So, you know, we want to try it our way now. And I didn't know what that meant. So my heart is pounding. I'm just like, all right, I got to learn real quick. I got to learn real quick. I got to learn real quick. So I, I think maybe I had, I had maybe like five Gs in the bank. So first thing I did, I brought an SB1200. Hmm. And um, Kilo Saunders, our, our hero formerly of Belle Bid DeVoe. Right, right, right. <laughs> and their equipment. <laughs> um, he, I was just like, dog, I need a crash course. Teach me, I want to be Pete Rock by the end of the week. Teach me how to sample, how to chop, all that stuff. So I spent a week learning how to sample and chop. And then we kind of came with a plan because the thing was, we also had accumulated a, a homegrown studio unit that, you know, we jokingly called from the the uh, the Star Trek reference. The, the Did I explain the Grand Negas on the last? I don't think we did, but I'd love to get, okay, a, get yeah, an explanation so, for that. I remember, I believe I told the story about when Diggable Planets won their Grammy. Right. And we, and that speech they gave, which instantly I was like, oh, they're about to burn a bridge yeah. and be done before they got a chance mm -hmm. to. Um, after they won their category, we changed the channel. This is the night we recorded Proceed. And um, 
on the on the screen, like there was a television monitor in the actual studio, and um, in the control room, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine was on. I am not like a level Roddenberry, a Trekhead. You know, t- to be a nerd and to not be science fiction guy is one of my deepest shames of all time. <laughs> um, but there was these characters on Star Trek Deep Space Nine called. The Grand Negas. I didn't even know that. And okay. I was like, yo, are they really trying to... Because <laughs> that's are... the one with the black captain too, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. And I'm like, come on, man. Y'all really... Like, am I hearing this? Are they calling themselves the Grand Negas? And we were just laughing because, like, you know, they put a special accent like, all healthy Grand Negas or Negas <laughs> or whatever. Gotta go. The Negas, she knows I'm here. What's the Nagus doing in my closet? The Nagus? And so we just thought that was hilarious. So we we decided, hey, we're going to call our production company the Grand Nagus, which was funny until maybe the second time you go to a bank and you oh, got to right. watch a very flushed, older white person like, uh, so uh, do I, should I, you should write down who's, you know, that sort of yeah, thing. No, started I, making... I believe me. I had a television show called The New Negro, so I saw a lot of white folks right, turn exactly. flush and not know what to do. New Negro, some people are scared of. A word of a scene they was not aware of. We heard you believe what the media get told you. Them old ideas get blown up. Behold the New Negro. This, that, and a third. So, uh, by Illadolf Half-Life, we decided to start a new LLC, and we became the Grand Wizards. Which was like, <laughs> That's like the opposite. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That was, you know, what makes us do these extreme shit? So, in, in the circle was Kilo Saunders. Kilo, who's, you know, producer. This beat maker from Philly named uh, Mel. Chaos is his name. You know, Chaos has done a lot of work in... For acts, so many that I'm forgetting right now, my old age. Sorry, Mel. Myself and, you know, the members of the Roots who are, you know, Kamal is starting to work on stuff. And so um, I didn't know it, but it was basically going to be off to the races. So everyone's just starting to make their own beats and hear Tariq and Malik like. And I'm like, wait, do, do, don't, do I get a say in what winds up in my own record? And so I will say the first, now I, I consider albums. Uh, I talk in quarters. First quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter. So I will say that technically the first song that we worked on was Push Up Your Lighter. With Bahamadia. With Bahamadia. Check it out. Inclined to rap about facts, I never fake jack. Shit is real like impacts. 456 is trends and gimmicks. Couldn't face the true audit when I first started. But then few remember this anti gangster bitch. 14 new jewels, plain J styles, eternal to the naked eye. Technically, push up your lighter. The origin of push up your lighter. So during that whole silent treatment remix thing. We got a Sprite. Sprite had a campaign. You remember a tribe called o- Quest? Obey your thirst and yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah, that whole mm-hmm. Obey your thirst thing. So we did a Sprite radio ad. And I decided, you know, I name I name my snares, my main snare. Snare number one is the Dilla snare. And that's a high pitch, cracky snare. Mm-hmm. 
my snack and snare, where which I rarely use, is more or less where I'd put my food and my notes and my drinks, <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that, <laughs> all my notes. Um, but that's my primo snare, gotcha. and that's a deep sounding snare. So I decided, well, okay, this is a Sprite commercial, so it's not on a Roots album. Let me see if I if I have another sound in me that's not this jazzy high pitched snare thing. So we did the Sprite commercial, which was that's a lot of liquid in there. Yeah. <laughs> Embracing the cylinder can, obeying my thirst command. When it's too much to withstand, cause man, summer got me in a pool. A sweat time to rearrange this whole set to get cool. I'm on the brink, thinking I need a chill drink to replenish. Then we'll drink Sprite until it's finished. Relaxing the mind, taking off the summer edge. In emergencies, first obey what your thirst says. That was hard. Damn, Tariq sounds like he's 12. <laughs> he did sound mad. So, um, you could always tell what I'm listening to based on what winds up. Because, again, we're not traditional songwriters. Not like I'm waking up at night like, I have a vision. Da -da -da -da. You know, I just go to the studio and whatever, the, the accumulation of everything I've been listening to that week is going to come out in the wash. So, you know... I knew that if we got a really good mix now what that was a, a rough a rough yeah. mix. But now that didn't sound like a sample there, right? So that's just a no, that was us. Or, or somebody playing the keys and yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, it was us. So um I kept stressing to Bob Power, like, yo, like I wanna sound like and I kept playing like Primo's low drums and all that stuff. And he suggested, Well, you know, why don't you guys sample yourself so this is where the, the 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 first seed of all right so we're gonna play and then when we're done we'll get a nice decent half mix to it make sure it's flat and then we're gonna take that and then put it on that and then we're gonna sample it and treat it like treat it like a record yeah treat it like a a, a hip-hop sample and so i'll say that we start with push up your lighter I definitely know the second song. So the second song, we're still in that mode of uh, such and such group fucks up and can you guys come and do this show at this college? You know, we're the dependable uh, homecoming group or the, you know, spring fling <laughs> group or the college. But we got called to do, it was a call for Atlanta. Now, this is 95. We're not rolling in the dough yet. And we officially closed the budget on Do You Want More? And it's going to take a while for... Them to open up Philadelphia the budget for the next... Open. Okay. And if you remember, the, the, the prime reason why we chose Geffen was if you make album number one, you got to do two and three. So we would have probably gotten dropped by Mercury. Based on sales of Do You Want More? Yeah, we did. You know, now we're gold. It went, it went slow gold seven years ago, but... It kind of teetered out at, we were a 350 group. So it was like, with the critical acclaim, and we made every year in list in the past job, like all those important critical things, and our live show, and selling 350 was like, okay. It was respectable. Well, let's see what they do the next record. So here's the thing. We got a call for a gig in Atlanta. It wasn't enough money to fly us all down there, and backline and all that stuff. We weren't at that level yet. 
Um, however, we did have a Pathfinder via that deal thing with Wendy Goldstein. Like, you know, we want apartments, uh, some cars, and, you know. So we had a Pathfinder. And Rich was like, okay, how can I freak this? Tell you what, Razel, Amir, and Tariq as a trio. And I was like, wait, no bass, no keyboard? He's like, no, nah, let's, let's go. Rich is always looking for angles. And, you know, Rich is the kind of dude that, like, looks at a group like Deerhoof and be like, remember when you guys were that good? Like, you know, like Deerhoof is a group that just, you know, plays with half a drum set, a broken cymbal, not even a chair. They sit on crates and they whip your ass in concert. And meanwhile, I got to have like a Neil Peart 49-piece <laughs> drum set or whatever. So um, all I remember was we had a far side gig in Philadelphia that Tuesday. So I was like, so we're going to drive in the Pathfinder to Atlanta, hopefully in, in a day. Yeah, that's a, that's a long drive. He was like, we can make it in 17 hours. Do the gig, take a nap off or whatever, and then come back in time for the far side. Um, so here's the weird thing. We, he, Rich went the back roads. And this is before GPS. So, he, I mean, he was doing 100 miles per hour. So we actually got to Atlanta maybe like 12 hours. That's crazy. We were not law-abiding citizens <laughs> and when it came to, like, driving. So we did the gig. And, you know, it taught us a lot also about improv. Like, could we make a show good with just a beatboxer, a drummer, and a rapper for 90 minutes. And that really taught us a lot about improvisation and not fake it till you make it, but that's a, but the show actually came off. Um, to the point where Rich was like, not for nothing, but... <laughs> Sometimes that's going to be what it is. We can rule the world with just you three as a trio. Um, but, you know, it's like we're a band. So we actually... We had a day off, and I think Rich wanted to make sort of a, a political connection or a political move. I'm sorry. I don't mean with politics. I'm talking in street terms. Politicking. And basically, he was like, let's go to DARP Studios. Where is that? So DARP Studios used to be, uh, first it was Bobby Brown's Boston Studios. Bobby was like the first modern artist before Ellie and Babyface came and set up shop in Atlanta. Mm, okay. Bobby, I mean, no no offense to, you know, the Peebo Brysons of the world, whatever. I'm, I'm talking about, like, new blood. Yeah, yeah. Bobby was the first to come to Atlanta, really plant his, you know, feet there and built a studio. He built Boss Town Studios with all that don't be cruel money. Mm -hmm. um, and then he winds up selling it to Dallas Austin. Gotcha. Um, in 94, you know, so that's where... Dallas is producing, like, all the LeFay stuff and, Al, you know, all that's where they're recording. Gotcha. So I think, if anything, Rich just wanted us to put our face in the place and see what we can come up with in six hours. So I remember going to DARP Studios. Um, Fishbone had just signed to DARP. And uh, I remember uh, uh, the lead singer Fishbone. Um, oh. Angelo. Yes, yes, thank you. Angelo Moore, the great, legendary Angelo Moore.
Angela Moore is in the hallway with a new, um, it's not a Farfisa, it's what, what they use on the theme to Star Trek. The theremin. A theremin. Yeah, yeah. He has a brand new theremin. He loves that And damn he's literally like, <laughs> right, but this is when he first got it, and so he, I don't know if it was like performative craziness or whatever, but he's like in the reception area, and he's <laughs> looking like, he's doing like the karate kid pose and oh, all that yeah. stuff. And, and all I want to be is like, yo, man, your your first EP changed my life. But he's like, one second, he's come join me. So I'm like, I'm like in the circle with them. And oh, this is great. Hey, man, big fan. And you know, so all I know is that um, it's the three of us, and we're in the smallest room. I remember Monica and Dallas were in Studio A in his room. Never got to meet them. Uh, Fishbone was doing that, whatever their Chimcherese, Badass, or whatever the name of that album was, their first non-Columbia record. I see. So Joy is there, and they're working in Studio B, and we're in Studio C, and we, Panic was the song that we worked on. Yeah, I woke up in the darkness at 1217 to shots and sirens. Look out the window, peep the high beams. Now they searching. The cops looking for the person that pulled the trigger. Medical figures is nursing the kid that got shot. Some innocent octave were front to flip the rock on the McKean Street block. I try to tell them to stop because it was ghetto red hot. Similar to the blood now. Blood is top. I take a step out. There was drums there. There was a Fender Rhodes there. And there was Rozelle with the microphone. And is the is the rose backwards in Panic? Is it reversed? Yeah, I okay. I, I had to pull all the tr- you know because I'm without like I'm not a traditional keyboard player or bass player or whatever. So I'm just I'm good at textures mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So you know I'm just pulling all the tricks I know. Like oh, what you want to do? Uh, reverse the reels. <laughs> and I'm like playing backwards and doing all this scary stuff. Um, so we worked on Panic. So at the very beginning of Philadelphia, I felt like I had the upper hand at least in terms of, okay, I got a good song off. So my vision will be like, I, I planted my flag and, you know, this song will sort of guide how the album sounds. Push up your ladder, you have, at least have the idea for. Right. And then panic, y'all did. And then panic. And then literally by the time I got back, Kilo had taught Kamal. How, so Kamal had an ASR-10. Chaos had uh, his MPC-2. Kilo was still using his uh, all of his post-Bell DeVoe stuff. And they're already off to the races. So by the time we literally get home, Kamal's figured out how to make uh, sections. And they're doing the same thing. They're going through old reels, old songs that we never used, sampling them. Oh, so most of the sampling is y'all's plan. It's not yeah. like records. Okay. Yeah, so the whole... Yeah. All, which, you know, the funny thing about... Uh, the funny thing about Section is the first gold record 
I ever. So you know, when you're like bringing joints back to the crib or whatever, and you're trying to like, you know, figure out like, you know, well, you, I have no awards, I have no nothing. So the first award I've ever gotten was, well, first of all, Redman samples section at the whatever the interlude is at the beginning of Muddy Waters. He samples section. Somebody like the fuse who I can bring back news to all these crews who can't NBA jam with the shoes. That double shot Hennessy got my mind tripping. Drunk enough to start a campaign on ass kicking. With my nigga Keith who give assists like Scott Pippen. But MC Derelict whipping. Then um, more famously, uh, oh, no, 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 Sim Seema. Who got the keys? Who am I? The, the Who Am I song samples uh, section. Beanie Man, yeah. So both of those records went gold. Ah, and so publishing. We got our we got <laughs> our plaques with that. So you know, girls be coming over like, oh, you you produced Red Man and uh, <laughs> you worked on Who Am I? Yeah, you know, we worked on it. Like, it's so embarrassing, like, you know, to finally get your own gold record, like, in 99 was like, whew, I guess, <laughs> Take those down. Yeah, I guess, yeah, 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 finally. I, I couldn't wait to take those off the wall. So, quick question about Section, though, before yeah. we move on. Uh, Cause section wasn't an official single, but I feel like I used to hear it. It was. Oh, it was. Okay. We put it on the B side of Clone. B side. Okay. So I, cause I felt like I heard it on underground radio all the time. Now section, it's like a dark song, right? Yeah. And it made me think when I, especially when I go back and listen to the album, and cause the oh, the whole album kind of has this kind of like wintertime feel for me. Yo, and it made me think of like all we got is us from Onyx or like Rat to the Math from J Ru, like these albums that had this kind of this winter heaviness about them. Yeah. The rat, the rat, the rat. Oh, oh, oh. The math. And I wonder, like, what do you think it was about that time where all those albums were coming out that had that heavy feel? So here's the thing. When we had that, we tried it your way. Yeah, that conversation. Now we're going to do it our way. I feel that a big part of the chip on the shoulder was, for starters, you know, Tariq and Malik, and frankly, all of us, me included, thought that the right channels were going to recognize that these two were like lyrically like some incredible ass MCs and the amount of lyrical chin-ups, push-ups, sprints, <laughs> uh, working in the gym that they did on the chance that, okay, you guys got to go to New York. You're going to do da da das mixtape. Like there were no callers with the exception of Stretch and Bob Beto. Um, And even that, we would listen to Stretch and Bob Beto and it was always like, wait a minute. I've heard that rhyme before. Wait a minute. He's kicking this verse from blah, from blah, From his blah, record, blah, blah. yeah. Like, we were just under the impression that, that like, everybody was everyone in New York was, like, mental-level freestyling. So, thus, they prepared as much. And it was like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Like, we couldn't get any reindeer games. So, I think, like, I feel like lyrically, Tariq and Malik were like, we were code-switching on do you want more but the thing is is that that's them too 
we're nerds, but we're also, I mean, I'm not necessarily street associated, you know what I'm saying? But I grew up around it and I know what time it is. But I think for them, it's like, we want to play some shit in the barbershop that isn't cutesy, like Mel My Man or a Say What Man. Right, right, like, right, right, right. You know, and... Some edgier shit. And Malik, and the basic Malik agreement was, you know, he left the group, but at least studio-wise, he was still going to be there. And Philly was just... It depends on what your circle and what your environment is. I spent a lot of times, like, my free times were, were going to the Lollapaloozas of the world on off times or going to this particular club or whatever. So, you know, my thing was more, I was more akin to your musical taste than anything. Like, I'm going to rock shows, going to, you know, crossing off a lot of bucket list of like, oh, Joni Mitchell's in town. Let me go see <laughs> And not to mention, man, 95, 96, man, we are, it's, Wu-Tang is unavoidable. Who rolled together as one. I call my brother son because he shine like one. Check it. Scriptures hit the body like sword off shoddy. Like my hair naughty and my nose piece snotty. Fuck a nigga hottie. That whole pussy probably burn like the deserts of Mugabe for red. Ain't nothing fraudulent here. We pioneer. And so just that level of seriousness, yeah. we, we got... Like, Illadelph Half-Life got so much critical acclaim and only Greg Tate's review of it in the Village Voice did he express disappointment that he felt like we sold out. Like, and he called... I remember the byline of the review was like, the roots to woo or not to bop. Whoa. And that's the thing. It's like, I know the perception now is of the roots, but every album was a major disappointment to whatever the fan base was of the previous albums. All the all the people that we won with organics alone, just that local Philly thing, the the poets, the coffee shop chicks and white like all those people. Like when Do You Want More came out, that was jarring to them. It was like, ooh, you guys sound like a rap group. Like Distortion Aesthetic was like, ew, this this is rap. They were expecting something more jazzy, melodic, like R&B yeah. sounded almost? Exactly. Okay. Very, and so then once the Do You Want More crowd got used to that, mm -hmm. then I remember like Tariq's uh, ex-girlfriend, the, the the one whose Silent Treatment was based on, she was like, ew, Fifth Dynasty. Like, oh, y'all trying to be Wu-Tang now with Fifth Dynasty and all that stuff? And it was, and believe it or not, things fall apart. Same thing. And those, I definitely know these are our most critically acclaimed records. But even then, like it, that was a hard sell. Like, oh, what's what's wrong with the drum sounding all off and these quirky <laughs> beats and that sort of thing? So it's just like each demographic had a beef, and then it took two years in between records, and they got used to it. So that became like our formula. 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 Dearest audience, we're leaving it there for now. But tune in next week for further adventures of Illadelph Half Life. Stony Island Audio.